I'm David Ford, and are you ready to rock Baroque style? I sure hope so. Here they are now, live from Studio A, Magnolia Baroque Festival musicians, tenor Glenn Siebert, violinist Ingrid Matthews, oboist Deborah Nagy, and theorbo and lute player John Lenti. The Chacon and C by Luli. But when you finish a piece like that, what's the feeling like? I mean, I'm going to throw it your way, John. I've never seen the theorbo in action live like that. It's a very physical instrument. You're just, you're really invested in it. I mean, it was, it was fun to watch and hear. Oh, well, it's a lot of fun to play. I have a background in guitar, and, you know, you get accustomed to playing on smaller, you know, well, instruments that don't have, like, 10 inches worth of bridge to play. And so, you know, you get to cover a lot of real estate. And in something like this, where I'm the only bass line instrument, uh, usually I'm sharing that duty with a harpsichord and a cello and other things. In this case, I get to play all these notes and, you know, figure out as best I can inventive ways of making it a satisfying musical texture. So it's, uh, well, you said when we get to the end, how do we feel? Part of it is, whew, I managed to play most of the notes without a cello to help. Uh, but also it's great fun to be the one sort of holding it down, you know, to feel like I get to support the two melodic instruments. Would you describe the dimensions of this? That's an amazing instrument just to look at. We're talking about a theorbo here. Theorbo, yeah. The instrument is about five feet long. It's held in the lap like a guitar. It's got two ranks of strings. I've got short strings that are tuned in intervals kind of similar to a guitar or a lute. It's different, but uh, more or less the same idea. I fret them, and I, and I strum, and I pluck, just like I would, you know, whatever other instrument. And then it's got a second rank of strings that are twice as long as those, and they're tuned in a scale, so it's like I have a, the bass range of a harp tacked on to my, uh, to my lute. And that's actually exactly what they did initially. The, the earliest theorbos were conversion jobs. Like, they took a big lute. The lute usually has that neck that bends back, uh, and they, they sawed that off, and they glued on an extension with extra strings. And so what I have is an instrument with, you know, a, a wonderful rich bass range, 
and and the harmony. So like I don't have to fret those low strings, they're just tuned in a scale. So I only, you know, I just play them with the thumb of my right hand and that frees up my fingers and my right hand and then the left hand to make the harmony up above. You've got a lute on steroids. Lute on steroids, yeah. Or a, a lute and a garden rake that had a baby, you know. Like there, there are a lot of different things that people compare it to. I'm looking over your shoulder here looking at the music. I mean, this is like a, uh, as a, a sometimes jazz piano player at home where we have the real book and just a chord symbol and maybe a melody. That's what you're working on here. I'm hearing all these amazing sounds and you're, I know you're not winging it. It's all based on a system and a tradition, but talk about what you've got before you and how you're turning that into these, uh, these glorious uh, kind of symphonic sounds. Okay, well, what I have in front of me is just a bass line. It's just a single single melodic line, and uh, what I have written above some of the notes of the bass line are numbers. Uh, the numbers, we call them figures, and what they do is they indicate what the harmony is supposed to be. Uh, you work to a certain extent according to the key signature of the piece, like if I don't have anything written, then I just play kind of what makes sense. So it's a, it's a very freeing kind of notation just to have these figural suggestions above the bass line. I want to get into some of the freedom then from a melodic sense too, uh, Deborah, because I'm hearing just through the ornamentation and, and, and the nuance of what you, you're doing with Ingrid, uh, that freedom, but I don't know how much of that is in an improvisatory sense or how much of it's written in from a melodic uh, perspective. Um, well, I think there is a lot of freedom. I hesitate to say improvisation, though there is some of that as well. Part of the freedom is rhythmic freedom. So, I mean, you're looking over my shoulder as well. My page is full of quarter notes and eighth notes. That doesn't really amount to very much interest-wise. But the French had a tradition of playing their eighth notes unequally, and there was a great flexibility. When I look at the page, I look at, you know, these quarter notes and eighth notes and maybe dotted quarter notes, and those tell me less about how I should play those individual notes so much as where the next note comes and what I might fit in in between. So you might see, for the non-musician out there listening, you might see a group of eighth notes, which traditionally would just be da 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 But in a French sense, oftentimes that might be more lilting, or, or give me an example of that. It could be da da ti da ta da ta which had hopefully five or six different qualities of eighth note in that bar of eighth notes that you just sang. And how do you get on the same page with Ingrid? Because you're playing a lot of these lines together, and, and how do you know that she's going to be uh, taking that on the same way you are? I mean, we come from a, a kind of a common knowledge base in terms of performance practice, but we're also good chamber musicians, and we're listening and responding and, you know, on the fly. Well, I was really enjoying not only hearing you all play, but, but the movement. I think I think seeing and hearing you all perform together, is, it's so worthwhile because it, it somehow contemporizes it. I mean, you, it, there's, there's this uh, dance-like sense, there's this drive, there's this energy that I'm picking up on, and you're all you're actually moving together many of the times. Uh, Ingrid, talk about the bringing out the dance in this shot cone. Well, I think bringing out the dance has a lot to do with what Deborah was talking about with the rhythm that a chaconne is, you could say it's two things. It's a repetitive harmonic pattern, as John mentioned. It's based on four descending chords that repeat over and over. So that's one thing, but it's also a dance, and it needs to feel like a dance. And if we play it all of the eighth notes and quarter notes very straight, it might not feel like a dance. So what Deborah's talking about, and you asked sort of how we decide or how we know exactly how we're going to vary the rhythm and put our slightly unequal spin on the eighth notes. It's all sort of organized around the strong downbeats, and the result of that is that it feels more dance-like. Well, I want to talk about your instrument and your instrument, but let's hear some more music first. I feel like a kid in a candy store 
What's next on the program? We're hearing something from Caccini. Yeah, Giulio Caccini was a, a singer, composer who really helped develop opera. And uh, he had a style of singing as well that had a lot of freedom, just like the Lully. And he called it sprezzatura, and that was a kind of casualness of rhythm that you were to bring to the music. Sprezzatura. 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 And last year it was trilo. We always get a new uh, word out of you. You know, I'll do a trilo for you too. Will you do a trilo? Yeah, Just for me. This is a dedicated trilo. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I should say, this is uh, Glenn Siebert, fine tenor and founder director of Magnolia Baroque Festival. Here is. What's the title of this, uh, this ditty? Amarilli mia bella. Amarillis, my sweetie. Live from Studio A. <laughs> Glenn Siebert. He'll be accompanied on the Theorbo by John Lenti. Amarilli mia bella, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Hey, it sounded great. Thanks. Glenn Siebert performing tenor and John Lenti, theorbo player. We got our trilo or two or three. Oh, they were awesome. See, we got to have an isolate. When I say trilo, it's not a trill, it's not a vibrato, it's something extra, something sounds different. Like a, sounds like a goat. Yeah. Give me a trilo. Let's isolate yeah. that trilo. No. Is it okay, Trilo? We'll give that a four or five. So you, uh, <laughs> out of ten. <laughs> out of ten. So I didn't give you the upscale on that one. And uh, what do we know about Caccini? Caccini, Italian singer, is from Rome, but worked in Florence and uh, was involved with the first creation of opera. And this type of music is a new type of music that was being developed. It was monophonic, 
had what John was talking about, just that single bass line and everything above the bass line, you were able to articulate the texts better. And that's really how opera developed. Out of that bass line, supporting a harmony without it being written out and being able to really express text above that bass line without polyphonic texture getting in the way. Polyphonic me, lots of voices, lots of stuff, lots of notes going on. And uh, Deborah, I was struck by the, the warmth of this sound. I mean, it really is a, a warm, almost oboe d'amore kind of sound. Is, is that, how much of that is your great playing? How much of the, the instrument itself? T- talk about this instrument. The sound of the Baroque oboe is really quite different, and that actually it's part of its kind of aesthetic conception. The oboe that I'm playing was essentially invented at the court of Louis XIV in the 1660s and 70s. And just as Glenn was talking about the kind of important development of monody with the Caccini that he sang, that you have a text that you're able to put forth and it's not sort of sullied by all these polyphonic, you know, all these other parts or voices. That was the trend in instrumental music as well. And that was also definitely a trend for wind playing. So before the Baroque era, there was also an oboe but it was very loud and it was usually played in a polyphonic setting, usually outside. And what they did at the court of Louis XIV was really kind of tame and civilize that instrument. Um, the pitch got lowered considerably and part of the low pitch is part of the kind of mellowness that you're responding to. But you're right, it's mellow and quite sweet. Give me uh, an excerpt that you particularly love that maybe a short section from an aria or something, an obbligato part that would highlight that. I'll play the opening from the Sinfonia that goes to Cantata 12 that we're doing next week on the concert. Great. This is the Bach cantata, and Bach, an early cantata when he was just uh, trying to prove himself in the world. Thanks, Deborah. We're here from Ingrid Matthews. I wonder if you could talk through, from the performance end, how your instrument, your bow, enables you to more fully embrace the traditions in terms of either ornamentation or just some of the neat things that you can do that are really tough on a modern instrument with a modern bow. Okay, well, uh, my violin is from 1703, and it's kind of a special instrument because it's in its original condition. There are a lot of violins out there that survive from that time, but most of them have had surgery over the centuries to make them louder and brighter and more appropriate for big modern concert halls and the higher pitch. My violin uh, has its original neck, so it's it's quite rare. That probably means that throughout the 19th century, it probably wasn't being played very much or not by a professional because if it had been, it, it would have been altered. And does that translate into a, sh- a shorter neck? Uh, it might be a tiny bit shorter, but it's set at a different angle. It's kind of... Uh, Hard to describe on the radio, but it's set at an angle that puts the strings under less tension. So therefore, the fingerboard, which I put my fingers on, is lower. The bridge is lower. So there's less tension overall, and that accounts for a mellower sound than a modern violin has. Also, there are some structural differences on the inside that you can't 
see with the bass bar and things like this. And the strings are made of sheep gut, unwound sheep gut I'm using on my upper strings. And this is not synthetic unwound sheep gut. This is the real deal. No, it's it's not a vegetarian, shall we say. It's not a vegan violin. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> but at least it's not cat gut, right? As a cat owner, yes, I should say so. What, how about just a sample? Uh, let's hear just a, a, maybe just a short excerpt. Just show off that, as you say, that beautiful, personal, mellow sound. I can't describe it and I won't even try to. We'll just hear some. Mm-hmm. 